Welcome to Famous Lost Words, where we find classic interviews from our archives and play the best parts for you. I'm Christopher Ward with Tom Jokic. Christopher, this is episode 809, our first show of the new year. In fact, most of our radio listeners are hearing this episode just after midnight. So happy new year, everyone. Happy new year, and here's hoping for a great year ahead. Absolutely. So as we look ahead to the new year and look back, as we normally do on this show, what do you think, Christopher, was the greatest year in music history? Tom, I'm glad you gave me a little time to think about this, because that's a pretty big question for a music fan. Yeah. Now, I'll tell you, I'd been listening avidly to the radio since about 1959. I started young, but the floodgates came crashing open a few years later with the arrival of the British invasion. Right. And it was truly an all-encompassing phenomenon for me as I began to get together with friends for the sole purpose of mm. listening to this new music, mm. talking about the artists, sharing the scant information the Top 40 radio would allow us, and fantasizing about being in a band. For me, that first guitar, a silver tone flat top from Simpsons, came a year <laughs> later. But the anticipation was building in 1964. It seemed like every new release from the Stones, the Kinks, the Who, and the Beatles changed everything that came before. These bands pushed against the boundaries of what had been established musically and lyrically. She Loves You was the anthem that launched it all for me. Right. Hits by bands like Billy J. Kramer and the Dakotas, the Dave Clark Five, Peter and Gordon followed. The House of the Rising Sun by the Animals gave birth to a million young guitar players <laughs> locked in bedrooms around the world, struggling with that indelible arpeggio. Yes, yes. My brother played that on his guitar. Absolutely. <laughs> I sat in various rooms in the dark till my fingers bled. The cliche is true. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Jerry and the Pacemakers, Chad and Jeremy and the Searchers may not have been musical giants, but their hits became part of the fabric of my imagination forever. Well said. And you know, Tom, it, it's sometimes an afterthought, but the American music of that era, particularly from Motown, was mighty as well. The Supremes, Martha and the Vandellas, the Four Tops, they all had career-defining hits in 64. And then there was the Beach Boys. What a year. That's a great choice. I mean, 64 is kind of like the Big Bang in in new rock yeah. at, at that point, right? <laughs> Good way to put it. I actually thought you were probably going to go with 65, just because it was when Dylan went electric and the Beatles were kind of blowing everybody's minds and the Stones were really starting to hit it big. And of course, James right. Brown and so many other artists, the Birds, you know, electrifying folk rock and all that stuff. But 64, you certainly can't argue with that. For me, it's a tough choice, you know. I really mm -hmm. love 1978 because it was the, the first Cars album, the first Devo album, the first Van Halen album, first Prince, first Police album, and all four Kiss solo albums, Christopher. <laughs> oh, no. You know, just a note on that. You forget that Prince started that long ago. I know, and I got into Prince a few years later, probably 1980 or 81, and went backwards. Right. And so I went to that album a little bit late and it's all the potential everything that you know about what he's about to become it is all there but my choice is 1979 i've thought about this a lot oh, it was a year of wow. incredibly diverse music in terms of styles okay uh -huh. we had new wave with blondie you know heart of glass dreaming those songs the cars talking heads 
The Clash released London Calling, although that was at the end of the year, but that was one of the greatest albums ever. Yes. Disco was in its last days, but there was some incredible <laughs> dance music coming from Chic and Donna Summer. And Michael Jackson released his best album, and yes, even better than Thriller, and that was called <laughs> Off the Wall. Yeah. Also from 1979, classic artists were still able to compete. Pink Floyd had The Wall. Super right. Tramp went pop with A Breakfast in America. ACDC were on the cusp of superstardom with Highway to Hell, the last album with Bon Scott. Led Zeppelin with In Through the Outdoor, their last with John Bonham. And Kiss released Dynasty. Not their best album, <laughs> but the tour that followed it was amazing. Canadian artist that year, know. 1979, yes. <laughs> Max Webster released A Million Vacations and a live album. Anne Murray had a massive album, and there were big records by Streetheart and Red Rider with Tom Cochran. There were also the second albums by The Police, The Cars, Van Halen, and the debut by The B-52s, which meant <laughs> Rock Lobster was on the charts at the same time as Dirty Deeds Done Dirt Cheap by ACDC. <laughs> And You Needed Me by Anne Murray. Oh, so there you that's go. That's poetic. And ground zero for hip-hop music, on the charts anyway, was Rapper's Delight by Sugar Hill Gang, a song right. that my friends and I learned all the words to. And we actually divvied up all the parts <laughs> because there were characters in the song. And I was Wonder Mike, and I'd like to say hello. <laughs> so the prosecution rests, Christopher, 1979 was the greatest year in music. <laughs> Why do I get the feeling you've been thinking about this for a while? This is the, Talk about floodgates opening, man. Yeah, I, I worked hard on that. But my point is, it was so great to hear those songs all over the place, all the time. And it's something I think that's missing today in Top 40 Music. Ah. So this week, Christopher, is an unusual collection of clips. First... We're going to pay tribute to some of the artists we lost in 2022, but don't think for a second that this is going to be a mournful show. These clips are very revealing and entertaining, so let's think of it more as a celebration of these artists. We've got Olivia Newton-John and Meatloaf, Ronnie Hawkins, and Jerry Lee Lewis. The Ronnie Hawkins clips are amazing and fun. They really yeah. capture his personality. And the Jerry Lee Lewis clip we have, the first one, is kind of funny, but also kind of chilling. Like, weirdly so. Yeah, I didn't really like being alone as I was listening to it, you know? <laughs> I mean, it captures his personality in a vivid way and not necessarily a good way. But those clips should be kept in a locked room somewhere. Just <laughs> <laughs> Plus, we have another edition of When Rock Stars Attack. And this is a very funny moment with a Canadian legend as she takes down a wonderful American singer who <laughs> yeah. had really changed her image. And we end it all off with another edition of TJ versus the VJ. Christopher and I go toe-to-toe -to -toe with music trivia in an epic smackdown of musical knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> but before all that, let's get to the artists. We begin with Olivia Newton-John. When Olivia passed away in August, there was a deep outpouring of tributes to her. And I didn't know this beforehand, but once Olivia had passed away... I heard a lot from your friends Amy Skye and Mark Jordan, who I didn't know worked very closely with Olivia over the years, especially in the latter like 10, 20 years of her career. And had the most wonderful things to say about her as a person, too. Yeah, yeah. Tom, this is a great clip of Olivia. We're guessing it's from about the mid-70s when she was still ostensibly a country singer. She's talking about how up till then she had been on a pretty straightforward path in her career. I've always felt like I was sort of on... A 
one path. I've had people that have helped me um, make that path stronger, but I've never veered off in different directions. I've been very lucky, I've sort of been. I was gonna say that's very unusual because most people do go through that. And we were talking about the identity crisis thing before. I've never know. had an identity crisis. I've always known, I've been, always known who I was and all that, that's the term they use, who am I? And what I wanted to do, I mean, not a, what I wanted to do was not something I was all that conscious of. I loved singing and that was what I was doing. And the fact that I was becoming more and more successful at it was a bonus to me, but I never got really hung up with all that. I think I was very lucky maybe that I wasn't brought up in Hollywood and with a lot of people who do have those problems. I came from a, uh, I lived in Australia where people are very straightforward and um, basic who don't believe in all that kind of thing. <laughs> and uh, I have very intelligent parents and I think a lot of, a lot of my, I have to thank my, my, my mother and my father, I guess. I lived with my mother most of the time and my mother had a hard time in that she had to go to work when my parents divorced and, but she's very intelligent and she's very, she guided me in a lot of ways, not ways that I can remember now, but not obviously she ways, did. Not pushy ways, obvious ways, but, but maybe. Just with uh, an intelligent mind yeah. and uh, all my family, I guess. You can hear much more in our special trivia to Olivia Newton-John. Check it out in the archives. From the summer of 78, that's Meatloaf and Ellen Foley and the teenage soap opera that is Paradise by the Dashboard Light. Tom, about a year ago, Meatloaf passed away at the age of 74. He had a wildly varied career from Broadway-style musicals to movies to his unlikely rise as a rock god. <laughs> Bat Out of Hell was bombastic, melodramatic, and a massive hit, having sold, you ready for this, 34 million copies to date. Wow. That's thriller territory, isn't it? Yeah, Eagle's Greatest Hits sort of area, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, here's Mr. Loaf breaking down the magnum opus from <laughs> Bat Out of Hell, Paradise by the Dashboard Light. People come up to me who grew up in the 60s and say, this is a real 60s song. People come up to me who grew up in the 50s and say, wow, this is a real 50s tune. And people who are, uh, are uh, going out with Jane on the weekends and parking in their Chevy out by the lake somewhere are uh, saying, hey, man, you really got, you know what's going on today. And I have a feeling that if someone uh, uh, 75 or 80 came up to me, they would come up to me and say, hey, man, you really had it pegged uh, for the 1900s, you know, early 1900s, because we used to do that in my buggy. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I think that's a, and I think probably the knights, you know, yeah. back in 1400s on the back of their horses, you know, they could have done the same thing, or the uh, chariots, you know, with the Romans, whatever. I think it's a way of life, <laughs> yeah. you know, paradise by the dashboard light, paradise by the chariot light, paradise by the buggy light. It doesn't really make any difference. It's a... Uh, well, the only the big difference. Overall emotional feeling about how it is when uh, when you're going through uh, those stages of life. I mean, it's something people are both nervous, they're innocent, uh, you know, and that's what paradise is meant to be. Oh, so when that song was on the radio, Christopher, I was 16 years old, and needless Ooh. to say, it really spoke to our age group. <laughs> I bet. Also, it was just a riot to sing along to. You know, Meatloaf's career and life was very complicated but boy he not only had a moment right then in the late 70s but he had a few more after that this is famous lost words i'm christopher ward with tom jokic still more to come including a clip from our most listened to episode in our history Welcome back to Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward with Tom Jokey. From 1989, that's Depeche Mode and Personal Jesus. 
Tom, Canada always had an affection for Depeche Mode. Since they launched in 1980, touring brought them here frequently. In 2005, Andy Fletcher from the band spoke with Toronto broadcaster Mae Potts in an intriguing interview that touched on their approach to making music and what happens when you get out in front of your audience. You know, uh, when I think about the, the, the number of times you guys have played here in Toronto, and i got to tell you, I was there for your very first show, and it was just after the release of Just Can't Get Enough. That and was at the, uh, concert the hall. Brit in- Invasion, wasn't it? Yeah. And, and you guys... The Jam played a couple of days before. Was, there, it Massey, was it Massey Hall or something? Massey Hall. And, the, and yeah. I remember, too, um, at the concert hall when you guys played there and you had the big tape machines, this was, I guess, gee, I'm trying to remember the year. Would it have been like 1980 or 81? 81. 81. Yeah. You, 81, yeah, definitely. I still remember the response of the audience being so negative towards <laughs> synthesizers. The tape and the tape machines. And I remember people grumbling in the audience about that. When you think back on that... Um, you know, do you sort of find it kind of funny now, especially when you think about how the music world has evolved and how technology has evolved? But do you remember that response when you first came out? I don't actually particularly remember because, you know, it was the first time we'd been to Toronto and we were just thinking that this is all great, you know. Um, but, um, you know, it, it, we just thought that that was the way to make music, uh, an interesting way to, to go forward in music. And we would, it turned out we were right. Um, and you know we we did have a few problems uh, from from sort of your usual rock critics and things like that that thought we, it was a bit strange. But I, I also think that was the that was our appeal to a lot of people in say in Toronto, for instance, which has always been one of our biggest places we've played. You know, uh, the fact that we did look and we sounded different to anyone else they they'd seen before. Great stuff from Andy Fletcher from 2005. And Christopher, you may find this a little surprising, but the most listened to episode in our entire history of Famous Lost Words is the tribute that we did for Andy Fletcher shortly after his passing in May of 2022. And you can hear that episode in the Famous Lost Word archives. Just find us on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or any other podcast platform. But yeah, like... By thousands and thousands of listeners, the Andy Fletcher interview is our most popular. And I think what happened is I think somehow we landed on like a fan club or something and they just ran with it. So uh, it really says something about the power of fans and also just how beloved Andy Fletcher was and the band Depeche Mode is. Well, greetings to the dedicated Depeche Mode fans who are listening today. For sure. And by the way, in our archives, I just found something. We have you interviewing Depeche Mode uh, from, I would say, the early to mid-80s. And one of these days, we're going to uh, get that out of the archives, dust it off, play the best parts for everyone. You know, I didn't know that that interview was around to be found somewhere. That's that's amazing, because I knew that I did it. And it yeah. came back to me when I was listening to the Andy Fletcher clip. But um, And they were they were quietly a very, very good interview subject. Mm-hmm. And such a thoughtful band, too. Yeah. Mary Lou, Mary, she took my diamond ring. Oh, Mary Lou, Mary, she took my watch and chain. 1959, a rock classic, Mary Lou, <laughs> by Ronnie Hawkins. Tom, Rompin' Ronnie Hawkins was one of the most colorful and beloved musicians in Canadian rock history. 
Born in Arkansas, the Hawk made his mark as a singer and performer, but ultimately may be best remembered for his mentorship of a long list of players, none more significant than the members of The Band, who honored his place in their history by featuring Ronnie in the film The Last Waltz. Right. In this first clip from the 1980s, you can hear his passionate belief in Canadian musicians, and that's something that he never lost. Ronnie Hawkins, welcome back. It's, uh, it hasn't been that long since I saw you last time. Ah, how you doing, Jeff? Everything going all right? You were on my TV earlier this week, uh, Tuesday night, yes. on Seeing Things. Yes. I was turning the dial, and there you were. I've got Sir Lawrence Olivier scared to death. Uh, yeah, I guess. Uncle Jack, is that the character you played? Yeah, Smiling Jack. Mm -hmm. Heavy drama. Uh huh. Tell me about Haunting of Hamilton High. <laughs> well, that's, that's the one I've got Sir Lawrence Olivier scared mm -hmm. in. It's just one of those Friday the 13th formula movies, you know, but they're using the old Mary Lou of the 50s, and we got a little bit part in there. I play a, play a motorcycle gang leader that comes back from the grave. <laughs> <laughs> one of those serious jobs. Yeah. I'm going for the Grammys and Oscars. Some of your old songs, some of the songs that you've been doing for a few years now are going to come up on this in this movie, correct? Well, in Mary, they're, using, yeah. they're using Mary Lou in The Haunting of Hamilton High and Meatball 3, which is released in the States now. Uh, we, we did uh, seven mm -hmm. songs of the of the old rockers of the 50s. I wanted to ask you about that. Are you in Meatballs 3, or is it just your I'm, music? I'm in Meatballs 3. I'm just playing the music in it, and, uh, and I'm playing for the party of the motorboat gang. Uh-huh. You're playing yourself? Yeah. Yeah. You like making movies now, huh? Well, it's, it's easier than being on the road. Is it easy money? It's, something, easy, it's easy money. Something you have to work at? Or? No, it's easy money. It's a lot easier than playing the honky-tonks. Mm -hmm. You don't have to fight as much. <laughs> <laughs> you did that for some years, didn't you? I was, I'm cut on the bottom of my feet. I'm cut all over from the bars. Mm -hmm. And now you're getting set. You kick off a, a long engagement at the Harbor Castle. Yeah, the Harbor Castle. We've been, we've been pushing, trying to get some of the hotels to push some Canadian artists, you know, because it's getting really rough for them to work. You know, it's hard for a Canadian group to stay alive in Canada right now. Times have been a little tough. I've been, you know, lucky. Mm -hmm. Is this for people whose names we may be familiar with now, other entertainers, or is it is it for the kind of it's, entertainer who's who's really looking for a break? It's just any kind of Canadian talent that's good. Yeah. That there's talent, you know, how much talent there is yeah. in Canada starving to death. Mm -hmm. The greatest talent in the world per capita is in Canada. It's rough to make an album for ten thousand dollars when when everybody else has got a hundred and fifty on up. <laughs> but it makes it easier, I think. It, anybody who is in a group and who is struggling is always looking for that little boost now and again, right? They, they need it, you know. In Canada, bad, you know, all, all the great talent has to leave Canada, you know, and that's and that's bad. That's the second worst thing that can happen. But the worst thing is they don't get any break at all and they just quit, and the talent's lost. Why come it's a fellow like you that's always raising the flag the, the, the highest, you know? I mean, you came the other way across the border years ago. Canada's been really good to me. You know, I, I played that little old Memphis Chitlin circuit and like to starve to death, and it was really rough. And we came to Canada and chiseled out that little circuit in Southern Ontario, and it's still the best circuit in the world for someone who's paying their dues, you know, learning the trade. And uh, I just we're just trying to help out what little bit we can because we know how tough it is. Mm-hmm. Everybody's trying, you know. There's, there's, a, there's always been all kinds of talent in Canada. It's just, and like a, well, like you know, and most people know. In '59, mm -hmm. I had to loan my car to different acts and tell people they were from Arkansas or Tennessee <laughs> before they could get a gig in a bar. I did that with dozens of acts, you know. And then finally, they got the Canadian content thing out that helped a little bit. 
and now it's uh, it's still tough. You know, groups don't have places to play, and people aren't going out, and uh, times are a little tough. Mm-hmm. Thanks for coming in. Jeff, thank you very, very much. And we will anticipate the, the new album when you get it recorded and get it out, and we can see you at the Harbor Castle. It is called Celebrities Nightclub, April 3rd through the 25th. And drop down, Jeff, and bring, bring one of your favorite people, and we'll get drunk and be somebody. All right. Ronnie Hawkins. Thank you. Great chat with Ronnie Hawkins, conducted by my good friend Jeff Howitt, who was not only a great newscaster, he was also a huge fan of Ronnie and the band. And the reason why we're running these clips of Ronnie, of course, was because of his recent passing. And upon Ronnie's passing, I dove into the archives, found this, sent this interview to Jeff, because he hadn't heard it since he had done it. Oh, wow. So I think he really liked hearing that. And, uh, you know, just a great tribute. And uh, and we have one more clip to come, Christopher. Well, <laughs> this second clip is a moment. It comes from an interview with John Donaby yep. that tells you all you need to know about the late, great Robin Roddy Hawkins. One of the things about your career that's always amazed me, and it's a quote that you have used over the years, was that the normal places that Ronnie Hawkins would play, you'd have to show your switchblade and puke twice before you were allowed to get through the door, because you have worked at some of the roughest honky-tonks. Well, the Imperial Room is not going to be any different. I'm going to have them put chicken wire up there, too, <laughs> because uh, when those rich boogers get in there and get drunk, ain't no telling what they'll do. Oh, no, I don't want smoking or drinking or talking or anything going on when I play. <laughs> Wonderful example <laughs> of Ronnie's sense of humor. Yeah. You know, I met him once, and he was jovial and very profane, Yeah. but it was pure Ronnie. The late Ronnie Hawkins on Famous Lost Words. Tom, still much more to come as Famous Lost Words continues, including a revealing clip from a Scottish rock star and some wild stories about one of the most original stars of the rock and roll era. Just before we start the next segment, I just want to acknowledge some of the people who won't be featured in this week's episode, but who should be acknowledged because of their passing in the last year. Taylor Hawkins, of course, from the Foo Fighters, tragic loss. Terry Hall of the Specials. Dino Denali, great drummer for the classic band The Rascals. Gord Lewis of Teenage Head. Coolio, Lamont Dozier, classic songwriter from Motown. The hip-hop artist Takeoff from the band Migos. We also very recently lost Ian Tyson, writer of the Canadian classic Four Strong Winds. Also Canadian artist Jerry Doucette, as well as singer Susan Jacks, and of course... From Fleetwood Mac, we lost Christine McVie, one of the pillars of that band. Welcome back to Famous Lost Words, where we dig up interviews from our archives and play the best parts for you. I'm Christopher Ward with Tom Jokic. Okay, Christopher, brace yourself. (laughs) I'm ready. Hello, folks. This is Jerry Lee Lewis from Faraday, Louisiana. Some folks call me king of rock and roll. Some folks call me a slow leak. Some folks call me an idiot, but I know who I am, the killer. There's a clip that is as unique and as troubling as the man himself, Jerry Lee Lewis. Boy. Unquestionably, undeniably, absolutely one of the cornerstones of rock and roll history. Tom, Jerry Lee saw all the stops on the roller coaster of fame. Musically, he's unique. A member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, the Country Music Hall of Fame, a multiple Grammy Award winner, and much more. And he was portrayed by Dennis Quaid in the 2003 film Great Balls of Fire. Here, Jerry Lee briefly talks about his first hit. 
Well, we went to Memphis and auditioned for uh, Sam and Judd Phillips. They had Sun Records, and we put our first record out, uh, and it was 1956, and uh, it was a big hit record. A whole lot of shaking going on, sold about 12 million records. Great stuff. Jerry Lee Lewis talking about Great Balls of Fire. And I'm sure you know all this, Christopher, but Sam Phillips, the creator of Sun Records, said that of all the people he worked with, including Johnny Cash and Elvis Presley and Carl Perkins, Jerry Lee Mm -hmm. Lewis was by far the most talented of the bunch. I've never heard that observation. Yeah, I read a book about Sam Phillips called The Man Who Invented Rock and Roll by Peter Goralnik, who also did those that two-part biography of Elvis Presley. Um, and and he was a, like a bigger Jerry Lee Lewis fan than anybody else. He thought that Jerry Lee could have replaced Elvis Presley on the top of the charts, and it's possible he would have had he not gotten into all that trouble with his personal life. I think he had a narrower appeal than Elvis, though, you know? Yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe you're right. But maybe he would have been smart enough or had smart enough management to help him expand, although... Jerry Lee wouldn't listen to anybody, so maybe he maybe I was going to say. <laughs> so those are the only two Jerry Lee Lewis clips that we have in our archive, but we have a couple of other clips of others talking about Jerry Lee. Love this one. Randy Bachman gives a very colorful description of the first time he saw Jerry Lee Lewis perform in his hometown of Winnipeg. We go to a country music show, and we're seeing Ferlin Husky, Ray, uh, Ray Price, Katie Wells, you know, people like that. And on comes Jerry Lee Lewis. And he plays Crazy Arms and you win again, two country songs. And suddenly he starts a whole lot of shaking going on and he's got this beautiful hair that's every lock is in place like a wig, you know, like these British guys wear in court, like one of those wigs. And suddenly he jumps up and the piano stool falls over and his hair falls over his face and he starts a whole lot of shaking going on. And the whole place is just aghast at like, what is this guy going crazy. What's he doing? Then he jumped on the piano. He played it with his feet. And the next day on the radio, I remember Doc Steen on CKRC radio. He said, this guy went crazy last night and tore up the Winnipeg auditorium. And he, and he played Shaking All Over back to back twice. Great stuff. So much more from Randy Bachman in our archives. Check out episodes 704, 502, and 612, plus our best of show where Randy talks about meeting Ringo Starr and subsequently (laughs) working with Ringo as one of his all-stars. This is Famous Lost Words, and we're talking about the late Jerry Lee Lewis. Here, country singer George Hamilton IV has a colorful Jerry Lee anecdote from The Patty Page Show. Jerry Lee Lewis, uh, wow, what a character. You know, he's... um... One of the greatest showmen of all time, I guess. And I saw him in Nashville at the Naris Banquet, and they opened the curtain. He was standing on top of this beautiful grand piano with a big cigar in his mouth, you know, and his his thumbs tucked in his belt, kind of like with that look on his face of, I can whip the world, you know. And he had everybody convinced he could, as a matter of fact. I did um, Patty Page's um, uh, television show with him back in the late 50s. She had a, record, a show called The Big Record. And he had Great Balls of Fire then. I had a song called Why Don't They Understand uh, out. Don Costa had arranged it. So I was on there doing Why Don't They Understand. Here's Jerry Lee Lewis. And he's singing Great Balls of Fire. And they had a device that it, when he got to the chorus, fire exploded out of the piano. It was a little, you know, a little explosive thing and fire came up. And he's rehearsing at the afternoon. And they had guys like Earl Wilson from the paper and all these music critics came in for the dress rehearsal. And Patty Page is such a lady, you know. She's so nice and ladylike. And here's this guy from Memphis, you know, just raw, nitty-gritty, you know, raunchy, uh, rockabilly Jerry Lee. And he's playing Great Balls of Fire, and the fire comes up. And she walks over to him on dress rehearsal and says, Well, 
Jerry Lee Lewis. That certainly was exciting. And Jerry kind of wiped his hair back and said, I hope that damn thing don't burn my hair off. <laughs> That's the kind of guy he is. Oh, great stuff. That's George Hamilton IV talking about Jerry Lee Lewis. Love hurts. From 1976, what a great vocal. Love Hurts by Nazareth featuring the vocals of Dan McCafferty. All right, hands up if you knew where Nazareth got their name. No, I did not until this very clip. <laughs> Nor did I. Okay, it came from, I'm going to give you a hint, a very influential group whose music was making waves in the late 60s and early 70s. Usually, it was their musical approach that is cited, but here, Dan McCafferty of Nazareth tells a different story. There is an album out right now called Snaz, mm -hmm. and uh, called it's Nazareth Live Tonight, which includes some of the best material you've done before, things like Love Hurts and Holiday, which is one of the mm -hmm. great rockers as far as I'm concerned. You've also chosen uh, some material you have done before, mm -hmm. one by a really close friend of mine that I, I was interested to hear your version of Ricky Danko's oh, Java Rick Blues. Danko. Yeah. When Rick brought out that solo album with that on it, we were knocked out because we'd always been big band fans. I mean, that's where we got the name of the band, was from The Weight. Is that is that right? Right, it was like... That's a, take we, a load off Fanny, right? We, right, we were sitting there... Uh, going going we, down to Nazareth. We couldn't we couldn't gull the band take a load off Fanny if people wouldn't listen to it. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I didn't know that. Yeah, we were sitting in a bar once in Scotland, which we don't normally do. We're just doing it to be sociable. And uh, Big Pink had just came out. Right, this is when we were deciding what to call the band. And uh, the way it came on, it was, I pulled into Nazareth, I was feeling bad. Right. And we thought, yeah. that sounds good. Wrote it down, it looked okay, so we stuck with it. And that's how the name Nazareth that's came That's how the name Nazareth came. Great story from Dan McCafferty of Nazareth. Such a unique voice, especially on Love Hurts. And the title track from Hair of the Dog, a classic hard rock vocal. Dan passed away in November of 2022. From 1972, that's Seals and Crofts and the classic yacht rock song, Summer Breeze. <laughs> Tom, the chemistry that led to the sound of the classic 70s band Seals and Crofts is evident in their easy rapport in this interview. The clip starts with Jimmy Seals telling a little anecdote about how they met. But it then morphs into a very funny story from Dash Crofts about having to seriously improvise to get through a gig. He came over and asked me to dance, and I said yes. <laughs> we played at a dance one night in, um, at, a, at a college in Texas, in Cisco, Texas. And Dash had a group of his own, and I was playing with uh, another fellow's group. And uh, so after, after the uh, dance, I gave a concert. After the, after the dance that night, um, this guy that I was playing for, Asked him if he would join the group as drummer, and uh, so he did. Isn't that the night I had to cut off some tree limbs? No, that was later. Oh, <laughs> that was that was <laughs> that was the first one after that. Yeah, we we did a gig in a place called Pretty Texas. Are you ready for that? They invited us out to do this dance, and I said, "Well, I'll, shall I bring my drums, or do you have any?" Oh, we have the drums out here. They said, "Come on out. We have everything." So we got out there, and they had these drums. Well, they had a lampshade to hold up the snare. <laughs> and I think the cymbals were made out of garbage can lids. I said, okay, I accept that. That's fine. Where's the drumsticks? And they said, drumsticks? <laughs> I said, yes, you know, the things that you play the drums with. And they said, oh, well, we don't have any of those. Uh, we didn't know that you needed drumsticks. 
And I said, but you see, we're, it's in the middle of the night and it's 50 miles to any town, anywhere, and there's no stores. What am I going to do? They said, well, there's a big oak tree right out here in front. Why don't you go cut you off a couple of limbs and whittle them down? <laughs> so that's what I did. I went out and cut them off, whittled them down, and I played with them all night long. <laughs> that's the late Jimmy Seals and Dash Crofts talking about one of their very first gigs. I'm sure you had some really crazy gigs like that, Christopher, where you had to improvise because of the less than perfect circumstances you mean when motorhead were drinking 26ers of alcohol during the course of the interview and decided to eat the poster that we were giving away (laughs) yes yes that too but what about you when you were in a band and like you get to the venue and nothing is like it's supposed to be yeah I get bad shivers thinking about those occasions. It's <laughs> Absolutely. And I feel the same way because as a DJ, I used to show up to events, you know, and sometimes when, uh, you know, when you're the main attraction, the organizers are well aware of who you are and all that stuff. But let's say you are playing music in between a band or you're just one of many performers that night and they treat you like the fourth string quarterback. Like you don't even get to sit on the bench and you're barely, you're barely on the stage. Like it's very humbling. Uh, thankfully, that didn't happen too often with me. <laughs> I remember we did a gig in Nipigon, Ontario, and uh, I, I went up to the club owner at the beginning of the night. It was during the hockey playoffs. And I said, okay, so it's the playoffs. And I know everybody here is going to want to watch. Um, should we just cut our set short? And, you know, let the hockey game play when we're not playing. He's like, no, no, no. Do your usual set. Don't worry about that. Do your usual set. I'm like, okay, okay, whatever you say. But don't play when the game is on. <laughs> I said, oh. So, in other words, we, we, we only play when the hockey is not playing. No, no, no. Do your usual set. Okay, so we do our usual sets, and it's going to eat into the hockey game. Oh, no. Don't play when the hockey game is on. It was <laughs> so weird. So weird. <laughs> this story goes on like that. <laughs> so I have a similar story from October of 1993. Do you Only remember you what happened? Remember the exact date. No, no. You would remember too. What happened oh. at the end of October? I think it was October 22nd, 1993. Do you know, remember what happened on that day in s- Toronto sports history? 93? Yeah, it was the Jays. They won the World Series. Right. Game six of the 1993 World Series, and I'm DJing a wedding, okay? So I talk to the bride and groom before the dancing gets started, and I say to them, okay, so guys, like, how do you feel? Do you want me to do updates on the game and all that while I'm playing dance music, or do you want me to stop at all or anything like that? And the groom said, you know what? Nobody's really going to be into it. Don't worry about it. So I'm DJing. And while I'm playing to an empty dance floor, everybody is crowded around these this one small television at the bar <laughs> at this wedding. Yeah. <laughs> and I couldn't blame them at all. And then, of course, Joe Carter hits the home run. And now, all of a sudden, everybody's in a mood to celebrate. So I hit the dance floor hard with some great tunes. And, and the rest of the night was fantastic. <laughs> but, boy, I lost them for quite a while there. I bet. Yeah, I... Uh... I was there. It was one of the great moments in my life, along with the birth of my daughter. What? You were there? Yeah. Yeah, Rope oh, 15, Oh, that's baby. amazing. Oh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm Tom Jokic, and that's Christopher Ward, and this is Famous Lost Words. And we finally got to talk about baseball on this show. I'm happy now. 
Okay, Christopher, time now for When Rock Stars Attack. Love this. Okay, it's Jan Arden, so you <laughs> know that this episode of When Rock Stars Attack is going to be funny. In fact, yeah. absurd and hilarious can be expected. But underneath it all, the blade gleams for a moment as Jules' <laughs> image choices get skewered. Oh, yes, they do. Now, I just <laughs> want to explain that this is Jan joining our morning show and we're in the middle of doing a contest that has nothing to do with Jan, okay? But it's still a lot of fun. Have a listen. First, though, at 716, here's the clue for the morning mystery hit. Oh. 1989. Give us a call now. That's when? it? That's, That's it. it? That's, That's all, all you, you get, get because That's you have you to get. earn it. You either know it or you don't. Yeah. Can I take a wild guess? No, no, you no. can't. No, you, you, you I think it's Barbara Streisand's yeah. The Way We Were in 1971. <laughs> so close. So very close. We'll give you tickets to see Jewel live at Casino Rama on Wednesday, October 8th, if you can identify this song. Have you met Jewel? Had a little bit of a fight with her not three weeks ago. <laughs> You're not talking to her still, huh? Well, what had happened, of course, is I ran into her in a little studio in New York City. Yes. Uh, <clears throat> and she was there with her little dog, and of course... The band and I had been out all night, uh, you know, just doing kind of a Congo thing. Yeah. And, of course, we all had pork chops with us, <laughs> which was a bit of a problem with Jules' dog. Right. Yeah, and what we learned is never, never have a pork chop with you around a little dog and a pop singer. Yeah. Okay. So I feel a learned. song coming on. Yeah, Lesson there was learned. an incident. Jules has changed somehow. Am I the only one that has noticed no, this? No, we had A lot of posing, a lot of, lot, of, uh, lot of boob, I find. <laughs> Like I, well, she's dating a rodeo guy, so what can I say? She's still with that little tiny rodeo fellow, is yes, she? Yes, yes. Hmm. Good for her. you sell CDs. Yeah. Well, Did no, you know I, that? Just, I, just, I just saw the video and the fire hose and stuff, and <laughs> as soon as I saw it, I thought, damn, another one of my ideas shot to hell. <laughs> <laughs> Very funny as always, Jan Arden. That's so funny. Versus Jewel on When Rock Stars Attack on Famous Lost Words. This is Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward with Tom Jokic. Don't forget to check out past episodes of the show. We have special episodes on the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, plus interviews with Mick Jagger and John Lennon. Simply follow the show on the iHeartRadio app, Spotify, or Apple Podcasts, and scroll through the episodes to find an interview with your favorite artists. Okay, it is time for TJ versus the VJ, where Christopher and I face off against each other. I'm Tom Jokic, a.k.a. TJ. He's Christopher Ward, the original Much Music VJ, and here we go. Okay, full disclosure, when Tom and I prepare this show, we do have some inkling of what the other person is going to talk about. <laughs> we don't know the content of it, but we do know the shape of the show, shall we say. But here, right. we slip into uncharted waters. Tom has no idea what I'm about to do. That's right. Here on TJ versus the VJ. What band do you think that I would be the least likely to come up with some trivia questions about? Ah, uh, Starline Vocal Band. Tom, Gene <laughs> Klein and Stanley Elson were part of what band before <laughs> forming Kiss? Well, I don't know about Stanley Elson, but I do know that Stanley Eisen and Gene Klein formed Kiss. Oh, what what band did they form before Kiss? Ooh, ooh, ooh. Yeah. Wicked Lester. <laughs> oh, man. Okay. All right. I bow down to your intimate knowledge of Kiss. All right. So Gene, yes. Gene Klein, that is, released a solo album in 1978. Yes. He asked the members of what band to take part in this recording. 
I'm going to guess he asked either Cheap Trick or Aerosmith to be part of that album. The Beatles. <laughs> no way. Really? <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> and here's the big question. Here's the follow-up question, and then, then we'll move off of this topic. Yeah. How many of the Beatles actually agreed to take part, and who were they? I think it was only one, and I think it was George Harrison. Zero. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but I do want to tell you that yes. Joe Perry from Aerosmith's on that album. Um, Bob Seger is on that album in a song called Living in Sin at the Holiday Inn. Um, uh, <laughs> Cher, his girlfriend at the time, Cher, is, in that, is on that album as well. Uh, and it actually is an impressive and slightly disturbing collection of people that he has on the album. Okay, Christopher, earlier in the show, we were talking about my favorite year from music history. With that in mind, what is the biggest selling album from the 70s? And it is from 1979. Hmm. That's not Thriller? No, that's 82. <laughs> <laughs> See, the, you know I'm going to lose this. <laughs> it was a double album. Frampton? The producer was from Toronto. Oh, The Wall. Yes. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, Pink Floyd's and The Wall. dear Floyd, listeners, wall. I'm sorry. <laughs> you sent the wrong man out there for the mission. Can we get another VJ for the next time we do this? <laughs> okay. Whose performance of the American National Anthem at the Atlanta Pop Festival prompted the governor of Georgia to ban rock festivals. Well, then if it's not Jimi Hendrix, I don't know who it is. It's Jimi Hendrix, for sure. He performed it at the Atlanta Pop Festival in 1970, and I think it was near the end of his career. And the governor of Georgia just went, oh, that's not acceptable. That kind of thing is not acceptable. So he, he didn't just ban Jimi Hendrix or performances of the national anthem he banned rock festivals because of it <laughs> he did a thorough job then right wow all right your turn all right moving on to another of tom's absolute favorite bands <laughs> and you know this had to happen tom yeah. the starland vocal band <laughs> <laughs> all right so bill danoff and his yes. wife taffy nivert we're right. in a band called Fat City before they went on to form one hit wonder Starland vocal band. But before they did, and before Afternoon Delight became imprinted on our collective consciousness and Tom's mind, they wrote what was possibly an even bigger hit for an artist for whom it became a signature song. What artist did they write for and what was the song? Why do I think it's John Denver? Because you're right. Was it? Oh, my goodness. Was it Take Me Home Country Road? It was indeed. Oh, You're good. Yes. You're good. Hands down. Wow. You the man. Mm. Wow. I, boy, I just pulled that out of somewhere. I hate to think of where, where I was storing <laughs> that information. <laughs> well, John Denver, by the way, returned the favor by signing the couple to his label Wind Song Records. Mm-hmm. What massive band did they triumph over in the 1977 Grammys? Uh, what massive band did they triumph over? Oh, you mean, so So at the Grammys, they won Best New Artist. So I think that's what you're talking about. Mm. So Best New Artist, I'm going to say Boston. You're right. Oh, 
Oh, yes. <laughs> yep. Oh, I am He's good, ladies in. and gentlemen. I give it to him, you know. Okay. All gotta, right. You got to acknowledge genius when you see it in front of you, so... <laughs> Okay, Christopher. Right, one, I have one other, one other tiny little little postscript, if I may. Sure. I mean, I still have to des- desperately try to get you somehow. Okay. The Starland Vocal Band hosted a short-lived variety show. Yes. That featured what future Late Show host as a writer and guest? David Letterman. Yes. Yes. <laughs> uh, undefeated. Nicely done, sir. Thank you. Thank you. Mm. Wow. I feel good. I feel good. Okay, Christopher, <laughs> I'm going to lob this one into you. Let, let's see how we can do. Okay. What okay. performer's <laughs> career started in Germany? And I think it was a German production of Hair. And, but she peaked on the Billboard charts in the 70s, but had a couple of comebacks in the 80s, including a big song with the same team who produced Rick Astley. Originally, I was going to say Donna Summer, but it was clearly not her. Rick Astley. That was the Stock Aiken Waterman, Watermark. Yep. Yeah. Christopher, you were hmm. right the first time. Donna Summer? Yes, for sure. Oh. She had a big hit with a song called This Time I Know It's For Real. And basically the music sounds almost exactly like Never Gonna Give You Up. But it was a big song. And what made that song so great was Donna Summer's vocal performance on it. Yeah, it was great. And it was one of her last big hits. Wow. Okay. What band's greatest hits album is the biggest selling album ever in the UK? Remember, it's the UK. Do we count those Beatles albums, the Red and Blue records? You can, but that's not the right answer. Okay. (laughs) I knew that. Uh, It's probably Super Tramp or somebody like that, right? I don't know. No, it's Queen. Oh, of course. Okay, Christopher, here's another one for you. Yep. What Beatles song, I think you're going to get this right away. What Beatles song was created when Paul McCartney got a ticket for illegally parking on Abbey Road? (laughs) It's got to be lovely Rita, right? That's right. <laughs> you did lob that to me. And you know what? I thank you for saving my reputation, <laughs> such as it is at this point. <laughs> All right, Christopher. Do you have any more? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Now, I'm just going to say right right here and now, Tom is going to edit this out because he's going to think that it has no relevance whatsoever to our show. But <laughs> I gave him two of his favorite bands. Come on, you know, like yeah. Kiss, Starland yeah. Vocal Band. Yeah. This is my favorite band that we're going to talk yeah. about. Sure, and Bon we've Jovi. We've never talked yes, about I them know. before. <laughs> no, it's not Bon Jovi. Not today. Okay. It's Little Feet. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. What guitar god cited Little Feet as his favorite band in a Rolling Stone interview from 1975? Uh, is Joe Walsh a guitar god? No, he's not. Um, well, Eric Clapton? No. Good try. No, Jimmy Page. Oh, okay. okay. Well, they were such an influential band. Yeah. Well, the founding member of that band, well, I guess there was a few, but the, the singer and principal songwriter, Lowell George, yes, um, was a member of what outrageous Los Angeles band in the 70s? I don't know. The Mothers of Invention. Oh, wow. You know what? They're the ultimate <laughs> outrageous band. Yes, of course. I should have gotten that. I mean, okay. we, we have an album called Weasels Ripped My Flesh. You know, it's <laughs> yeah, you're going for outrage. All right. One final question here. And this is really just for me. So you will be yeah. editing this out. Okay. All Lowell, right. George, Lowell George was a renowned slide guitarist. But when it came time to record what became their best known song, 
a song called Willen, also yep. recorded by Linda Ronstadt, I might mention. Lowell injured his hand and couldn't play. Right. So what slide guitar legend filled in? Dwayne Allman. Ry Cooter. Oh, okay. Wow. <laughs> Boy. I did not is, expect you to get any of those. That is, <laughs> it was just for me. Deep. And to the Little Feet fans out there, I did it, guys. I got it in the show. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Christopher. I'm going to end with one more question. This is a uh -oh. this is a little bit obscure, but I actually think you might get this, okay? It's a 60s band, mostly a 60s band, although they've spanned decades, but mostly they're known as a 60s band. What instrumental group was called the band that launched a thousand bands? The Ventures? Absolutely. Well done. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, you're taking All care right. of my ego and my reputation. Thank you, Tom. <laughs> no, that I'm was so a good grateful. one. That, that was a good one. I was hoping you were going to get that. But it was, you know, when you think <laughs> about it, when you narrow it down, like the Ventures were kind of big. They sold a lot of records, millions of records, even though they really only had like one big hit with... Walked Out Run. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All right, there you go. TJ versus the VJ on Famous Lost Words. That does it for this edition of Famous Lost Words. Our show was created and produced by Tom Jokic, executive producer Sarah Cummings. I'm Christopher Ward. And I'm Tom Jokic. If you enjoyed this week's show, get caught up with past episodes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. And don't forget to subscribe and review us with five stars if you feel so inclined. It goes a long way to making sure we get to make more shows. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.